We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. to get podcast mode hurrah okay uh i guess it's my turn so hello and welcome to reread the podcast where we reread things that we read as children and see how they hold up in our adult years and on this episode we are talking about tony morrison's the bluest eye uh, I guess we should also note that you have not read this book, and we are we are officially pay attention, people. We're officially changing the rules a little bit. To, we've kind of already broken them at multiple points, but we are officially breaking them now for this. That as long as one of us has read it as a kid, uh, then we can talk about it because. <laughs> uh, we are now like 30 some episodes into our podcast. And this is the first time that we are talking about a writer of color. And that is an issue that we've talked about on previous episodes because our schools failed us as children, basically. So we're kind of taking things into our own hands now. Well, I think it's like not just that our schools failed us, although they certainly did. Mm -hmm. And like, I think I went through and I couldn't find, could I find any writers of color that I read in school? Mm, not sure. But if I did, it was only like one. And then personally, like, you know, I think we had both read more broadly. But even within that, finding things that we both had happened to read was tricky. <laughs> so, yeah, if we wanted to discuss, like, non-white authors... We really had to break this rule. And I think that, you know, as long as, yeah, there is some rereading going on and it's books that one of us read when we were under 18, I think that it's okay for the other of us to just be along for the ride. And it might also give a good, like, other opinion of someone who is experiencing it for the first time as an adult to, like, contrast with, you know, the person who read it when they were younger. Mm. Exciting. Indeed. And after all... It's our podcast, so we'll cry if we want to. Uh, since I'm the only one that had a previous experience with it, I'll, I'll just start. This book was seared into my brain. I read it on my own. I did not read it for school. My parents just happened to have it around the house, and I read a lot as a kid. Um, my junior year English class, we were given this assignment that we had to write a poem for the class, and I... Didn't really know what to write about. So I remember like one Saturday, I just went off in the morning and drove to a park uh, with a notebook and just like sat there hoping inspiration would hit me. And I just happened to park near a car that um, had what looked like a Latino family living in it. Basically, this family was homeless and living out of their car. I actually wrote a poem about that from like the father's perspective but i remember one detail from that poem i i don't have that poem anymore and it probably was not good but i remember there's a part in that poem where i wrote about how the father like looks in his rearview mirror and sees his kid in the back 
and I described the kid as having blue eyes. So I basically changed the race of these people that I observed. Soon after, I read the bluest eye, and I just realized how just how f***ed up what I did was. So this book has just really just stuck with me because of that. And this book, I, I suppose we should say, it's brutal. It is not an easy read. It deals with a lot of heavy stuff. I get the reason we picked it now almost like as a companion piece to To Kill a Mockingbird, which we can discuss if it's a, a I suppose, a proper companion piece for To Kill a Mockingbird. But a lot of the details, a lot of the framework of this novel is very similar to To Kill a Mockingbird. It deals with children. There's a child narrator. It's set in a small town. It's set around the same time period. To Kill a Mockingbird was set during the Great Depression. This was set uh, right after World War II. There are a lot of other details that just really match up very well. But unlike To Kill a Mockingbird, which had a lot of lighthearted moments, uh, this book is, is not, not so lighthearted. If you want to jump in with your current... <laughs> Just give an overview of your current experience as you had it with this book. I mean, I should start off by saying this is not my first Toni Morrison book. So at least there is some amount of like, I do at least have like tangential knowledge. Um, I'd read Jazz by her, which I really loved. And like, Jazz was a really interesting experience. And I don't know if I would go back and still feel this same way if I reread it, but I suspect I would. But like the entire premise of Jazz is that this woman has murdered her husband's lover Uh and they're like still together. Um, And it's kind of them working through that. As couples do. Yeah. um, And like the weird thing (laughs) is that Jazz was a weirdly happy book. (laughs) like really dealt with this material and had this whole thing in the middle which like I don't even remember really how it transitioned in but like had this whole thing where it like flashed back to like Mm -hmm. the slavery period and had different characters there and like it's really an incredible experience that I can't do justice to um because it, it just nothing about it should work and then like it does spectacularly Jazz is one of her later books I don't remember you're failing me, internet. <laughs> It'll be like this one first. Uh, okay, so let's see. It's one, two, three. Jazz four, is number five. six. Yeah, number six. <laughs> okay, so Jazz is her sixth work. And it's such a cool book. The last chapter of Jazz might be one of the best things I've ever read. It's really astounding. Yeah, no, it lo- it's so, it blew my f***ing mind. The thing she does with like narration and perspective and it's just it's so good it's so good so that was my experience of Toni Morrison and I think it is interesting now reading The Bluest Eye which is her first book and kind of seeing some of her evolution as a writer and um I'm gonna be reading uh her 10th book in next week so I'm kind of excited to see where that falls in this beginning uh timeline of her works that I am working through <laughs> yeah But I think that one of the things I enjoyed about jazz was how it handled a lot of these, this difficult subject matter and didn't make me feel miserable reading it. Mm -hmm. 
I think that there's an interesting, and we can talk about this, like there's a difference, at least for me, in feeling very emotionally struck by something and being made feel miserable reading it. And so like, Jazz had some really heavy moments that was dealing with hard topics and like that definitely hit me hard emotionally. But I think the bluest eye is actively working to make you feel bad. (laughs) And that is, of course, part of the point. Mm -hmm. And so I will say that I, I can recognize a lot of merit in the book. I think it has a lot of moments that are strong and impactful. And there were certainly moments that I enjoyed a lot more and that felt more to me like the same author that wrote Jazz. But I also felt like there were moments where, like, that balance of misery can sometimes just tip into, like, misery porn. And I I did feel like at some moments, it could have even had the exact same things happen and be written slightly differently to, like, still hit hard, but not, not make you feel, like, actively bad the same way, if that makes sense. I, I'm not sure how to really articulate the difference that I feel. In, in being made to empathize and and feel very, like, emotionally struck by something and then to be made just unhappy. So, and, and, and I should put out there that there were a couple of things that happened in this book that are just, like, things that are automatically going to make me think a little bit less of the book. And that's not, I guess, trigger warnings here for, I'm sure we'll discuss this. Yeah. But there are trigger warnings for, like, rape, uh, pedophilia. Those things I thought were actually handled pretty well. The thing that bothered me that is a personal thing (laughs) that I will think less of authors if they include this because I think it is almost impossible to write this trope in and have it be in any way justified Mm -hmm. is violent animal death, which happens twice in this book. And I didn't know that going in, and and so I think... Yeah, that's my bad. (laughs) It was also my bad, because I normally check these things, because I know that it's something that, like, people like to do in literary fiction. But I I personally think it's pretty lazy storytelling shorthand. Because, like, obviously the animal violently dying is always standing in for, like, one of the main characters, and this is meant to be a symbol of what's happening to them. And I'm like, there's just so many other ways you could show that. Like, there's absolutely no reason to make me get really sad over a cat or a dog dying. There's just no, (laughs) there's no reason to do that to me. (laughs) It actively pulls me out of the story. And, And this is, again, one of those things that's very personal, so I can't fully articulate why like that is something that will just remove me from story but I also know I'm not the only one this is off topic but just to like explain that multiple people have this issue um this podcast I listen to uh the Magnus Archives which is a pretty popular horror podcast and it just finished this past week but the writer and uh the lead voice actor the same person of the podcast introduced this cat character and by cat character I mean just like a cat in like one of the early seasons and got so many messages from people just being so they were like I wasn't able to focus because I was so worried about this cat the entire podcast because it's a horror podcast they were really worried the cat was gonna die the writer actually came out and said look guys 
just so like no one has to be distressed by this again, I promise you that any named animal characters will not die in the podcast. Because like it was it was more distressing to people than the actual like horror. But <laughs> but yeah, so I think that I will try and unless we want to have like a debate about the the animal deaths and their actual use in the story, I will try not to let that influence my feelings. But there is a violent cat death and a violent dog death <laughs> at two points in the story. So that was an influence in how I felt. Uh for me, it's kind of the opposite effect where, like, I just don't care about animals in stories or on screen, for the most part, unless they're actually made into characters. Obviously, I cared about the cats in Aristocats because those those cats, man. The Aristocats! Meow! It's more the opposite because, like, I, I see them as the prop that they are. Which isn't to say that they can't be valuable props, but for the most part, it's just like, I, I don't really care about them. So the, the intended effect of horror that these moments are supposed to inspire in me don't really work because I just don't care about these pets or these animals as characters. So it's kind of, uh, I come to the same conclusion as you but for very different, more heartless reasons, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like we're like ultimately coming at it from the same side. I mean, obviously, a lot of the the reason it pulls me out of the story, right, is like animals are very innocent, trusting creatures, especially pets. For instance, I'm not bothered if someone kills, like, a rabid bear in the story mm -hmm. or something. Like, I don't care. Now, just a minute. That's going too far. But, yeah, someone killing a domesticated animal is a lot harder because I just, like, I'm an animal lover. I've had pets my whole life. Like, I love my dog so much, and I have a very close relationship with my dog. As weird as that is to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, like... In To Kill a Mockingbird, they shoot the rabid dog. Yeah. I am not bothered by them shooting the rabid dog. It's a good, clean death. Atticus shoots it once. It dies. I'm like, okay. It needed to be put down. It was not in a good state. This is better for the dog, right? The animal deaths in this book, one of them is um, posed as a kind of euthanasia. But... Uh, how that was posed that way by a very unreliable character so uh, i don't really buy into it and you know with both of these circumstances the animal is shown to be a very trusting loving domesticated pet prior to being murdered by uh -huh. a human like that trusted it and has power over it and i i understand <laughs> again that these are metaphors for how these human characters, especially like human children and specifically like girls, mm -hmm. are treated, I understand. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I would probably have the same problem if it was happening to a baby. Because there's just no like rational thought there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And like it is horrible when it happens to children, but it doesn't feel quite as like, I don't know the right word to use. I don't know either. It's just different. <laughs> Sure. It is sit little animals. Morgan, 
It's okay. All they do is trust and love us. It's okay. Just imagining me patting your back right now. I don't plan on discussing the animals. Uh, I don't think there's too much to say about them in regards to this book. I I do want to comment on your point about this book veering into misery porn, because I don't think you're wrong. And in fact, uh, Toni Morrison provides like half halfway through about a very nice uh, too long didn't read of this book, which is <laughs> this quote, their voices blended into a threnody of nostalgia about pain, rising and falling, complex in harmony, uncertain in pitch, but constant in the resistance recitative of pain it's basically a summary of this book and human existence so much pain i think what this book is trying to do and we'll get more into this this book does i think it's responding to other books at this time that are covering the black experience and really romanticizing it in a way despite all the bad shit that happens to black people at least they still have a fundamental joy in life and things are all okay in the end because at least we have each other right especially and i think obviously tony morrison is speaking to a black experience specifically for black girls it's very clear from this book and it's i think still clear to this day that black women bear a lot of the brunt for a lot of and mm-hmm. i think that tony morrison was really trying to offer a counter to the kind of books that were being produced by black writers specifically male black writers at the time that were celebrating the black experience when it should be noted a lot of elements from this book are autobiographical the the setting of the story is lorraine ohio which is tony morrison's hometown She's pulling a lot from her own experience, and I imagine the experience of people in her life to speak to that and try to offer a countervailing narrative of like, hey, it's not all peaches and cream here. It's so funny because when I I start I started reading this book and then I ended up having to like stop like five pages in and go to class. Somehow in that very class, we ended up playing like a one minute clip of Toni Morrison talking. Oh my God. And it's specifically addressing what you were saying that she wanted to write against those. Yeah, that joyous sort of portrayal of uh, black experiences. And she was saying that like she felt like there was this need to put forth sort of the best face of the black community. And she's like, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to show the ugly side i wanted to show the messy side i felt compelled at that time this is 19 mid 60s most of what was being published by black men were very powerful aggressive revolutionary fiction or nonfiction. um and also they had a very positive racially uplifting rhetoric to go with it. Some of which was, all of which was stimulating, but some of which I, as an older person, thought, wait a minute. One of which was, (laughs) you are my black queen. Black is beautiful. And I thought, yeah, but why so loud? Then I thought, wait a minute. They're going to skip over something and no one's gonna remember 
that it wasn't always beautiful, you know. No one's going to remember how hurtful a certain kind of internecine racism is. So you've got the most vulnerable people in the world, which are children, female children, female black children who have never held center stage in anything. If they appear in a book, they're a joke or, you know, just some color, local color or a little walk-on part. The least important. Now, black women have sometimes held center stage in some books by blacks, even sometimes by white. But then, you know, they were maids, cooks, housekeepers, you know, they were really running. But the children were always lesser. So I wanted to have a little hurt black girl. That does come through, that she is trying to write against that experience and show some of the deep issues. Um, certainly there's a lot of discussion of, you know, racism, but also like colorism. That's a huge part of this book. Um, and the sexual abuse and assaults of black girls, which is still a huge problem today. It is much more common for black girls to deal with sexual assault than white girls. Like I said, I very much see a lot of the merit in this story. And there are certain points, yeah, where I think it's done better or worse, which I'm excited to get into. Indeed. But I think first we should probably have a summary. Yes, I agree. I don't usually summarize and I have a high standard, a high bar with Morgan here. So I'm going to hopefully match it. But I shall take on summarizing this book, which God <laughs> If this is not the hardest book <laughs> to summarize that we've covered so far, even more so yeah. than To Kill a Mockingbird. But so we you open, got this. we open with, uh, I guess you could call it a nursery rhyme of sorts that uh, gets a bit of the shining treatment. <laughs> it's a short passage that uh, paints this like idyllic picture of a white family. And this passage gets repeated twice. Uh, the first time, it loses all of its punctuation. The second time, it loses all of its spaces. So it's kind of like a descent into madness. So it's a very good start for the book. After that, we are introduced to our narrator, Claudia, who very much acts in a kind of scout-type role here, although there's a question if the book is always from her perspective, but we'll get into that. She is reflecting on her childhood growing up in Lorain, Ohio, and she, at the time, is living with her family. Uh, her dad, who we don't really get to see too much, like he's there, but we don't really see him in this story. Her mom, who is kind of strict, I guess, is the nice way of putting it. But also the narrative goes out of its way to say that her mom is also very loving and caring and all that jazz. And then her older sister, who is just a classic older sibling, very bossy, very much a know-it-all, but also much like Jem from To Kill a Mockingbird, she is very protective and more knowledgeable about the world and how the world works and what's going on in the town. And her name is Frida. Oh, yes. Her name is Frida. And then they're also living with 
a young girl named Picola Breedlove. She is, uh, well, her life really sucks. I'll, let's just put it that way. We'll see later that she comes from a very terrible home. Her dad is a drunk and violent and, as we learn, sexually abusive. Her mom is also violent and also, like, has this weird martyrdom complex. There's an older brother, but we don't really see him too much. All we're told is that he is constantly running away. It's not great. But she is staying with Claudia for the time being because her dad, Choli, apparently burnt down the Breedlove's home in an alcoholic rage. And to be clear, Pecola's not staying with Claudia because they're friends. Like, Pecola has no friends. She's there because the county had no idea what to do with her. So they just stuck her into this home. Anyway, and Pecola herself is just like very shy, very passive, doesn't really talk too much. Anyway, so this this first section of the book culminates with Pecola gets her first period. And there's <laughs> there's a lot of um, not very always accurate speculation about what that means and that's this is actually something i really like because it feels mm -hmm. very true to children of like how we as children i mean not me because i'm a boy but <laughs> uh how we processed and made sense of these big monumental changes happening to us and specifically happening to our own bodies and what it all meant after this, we transition to the Breedlove's home, where we can see just how dysfunctional and miserable their home life is. We also get a lot of psychology, and and I should note that this isn't like a very this is not a traditional narrative where like this thing happened and then this thing happened and this thing happened. We spend a lot of time internally with these characters, so we see a lot of their psycho uh, psychology. And in this part, we spend a lot of time looking at Piccola's psychology. This is where we're introduced to the concept that Piccola wants blue eyes because she thinks she's ugly, because she's black, and she thinks that if she were to get blue eyes, she would then be beautiful and nothing bad would ever happen to her. Like her home life would be fixed, people would love her, people would spend time with her, she would just be normal and loved like any child should be. This is kind of contrasted with we see later on that there, I can't remember if this happens in this section or later on, but we see Piccola going to like her mom's place of employment. Her mom works as a housekeeper for a white family. And we see this very sharp contrast between how Piccola is treated by her mom and how the white kid of that household is treated by the mom, uh, by Piccola's mom. So anyway, mind you, there are a lot of details I'm skipping over because much like To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a lot of kind of narrative loose ends that are there just to kind of season the whole story. But they're not necessarily the most pertinent to the plot. Like there are prostitutes that live in the apartment's upstairs of the breed loves that Piccola is really good friends with them and in fact they're like the only people who support her in this entire novel there's another tenant that lives with Claudia's family Mr. Henry 
I don't even know if we're going to really talk about it. Like he has, there's a plot development with him, but I don't, it's not, I don't know. We'll see, I guess. But, um, we'll probably talk about it more in conjunction with some of the things that happened to Piccola. Yeah, that's fair. So, but he's there. And I guess just so it's out there, we learn that he later tries to molest Frida, but he gets kicked out before he can do anything really, truly harmful. Although they're obviously it's still extremely traumatizing for Frida. But uh, anyway, we fast forward a little bit after this and Piccola is back with her family and we are at their school when with Claudia and Frida and they're walking home or they're about to walk home and this kid Maureen she's lighter skinned and considered beautiful she's a new kid in the school but despite that fact she is also probably the most popular kid in the school she randomly asks if she can walk home with them I guess they kind of live in the same area so it kind of makes sense but it's still just weird why she comes with them but it doesn't matter so they're walking home, and as they leave, they come across a group of boys who are picking on a girl, and who else could it be but Piccola? They're, like, taunting her. And they're specifically talking a lot about her, how dark she is as part of their attacks against her. Yeah, there's a lot of commentary about her quote-unquote ugliness. Like, everyone says that she's ugly, which just reinforces for her if she were only to have blue eyes. Anyway, they're taunting her. And Frida intervenes, trying to help out, and she's quickly backed up by Claudia. And there's a great moment where Claudia threatens to, like, punch a boy in the face. And that made me laugh. And then um, Maureen steps in and basically uses her charm to shame and embarrass the boys into retreating. So now it's just the girls, and they're walking along. And for whatever reason, Maureen really gravitates to Piccola. And is like chatting her up, is very friendly, offers to get her ice cream, which is very exciting because all these kids, except Maureen, are very, very poor and th they can't afford ice cream. <laughs> There's great moments with Claudia secretly hoping that Maureen will get them ice cream too, which she doesn't because as we soon learn, Maureen is actually just a <laughs> So they get their ice cream, yum. But then the conversation takes this really weird turn where Maureen keeps asking Pocola if she's seen a naked man. We haven't, like, at this point in the book, we haven't really gotten into too much detail about this. But there's some suggestion that something untoward is happening in Pocola's home. And I think this is really, like, the first explicit reference to that, that Pocola's dad might be abusing her. Anyway, the conversation gets out of hand. Everyone's yelling at each other. Maureen runs away, but before she does, she shouts at them the same taunt that the boys were taunting them with. And it just reiterates, not just for Piccola, but for Claudia and Frida, that because they are darker skinned than Maureen, they will always be considered uglier and therefore inferior. And then it's kind of at this point, point that the narrative takes a turn away from Claudia and Frida and and sort of gives us like a series of character studies I guess you could call them of different characters some that are new and some that we've already met so we start with Geraldine who is this like upper middle class black woman from the south who uh, is uh, 
extremely prudish, I guess is the way I'd, I'd say it. And she's living a super boring suburban life, a nice house. She's got the husband and the kid. She's got the cat, which is like the only thing she loves. And um, I won't go into too much detail here, but I'll just say that the son hates the cat because the cat gets more motherly love than he does. And he, after school one day, tricks Pecola into coming into his house and in like menacing her, the cat is uh, killed. He murders the cat. Murder! He murders the cat. You murdered her! Very explicitly murders the cat. Murderer! And it just so happens that Geraldine walks in and the son, who is a real bastard, says Pecola killed the cat. And the, it's it's all bad. Anyway, the then we move on <laughs> to the next chapter. And we meet again, I guess, Mrs. Breedlove, a.k.a. Pecola's mom, a.k.a. Pauline. And we learn her backstory, how she grew up in the South. She was one of like 10 kids, grew up very poor, has a lame foot as a result of stepping on a rusty nail as a kid. We also learn that she is really into housekeeping, really into organization. And this is kind of an outlet for her to cope with life. And we also learn about how she met Choli. And we see the arc of their relationship, how it went from this initial super romantic honeymoon kind of phase to the just broken, messed up, dysfunctional relationship at the, that, that we see at the beginning of the book. And we also see more of her relationship with the white family that employs her. And it's this really interesting thing, I think, how there's this constant refrain about how she's the quote unquote ideal servant. And we see how much pride she takes in that and how that sort of bleeds over into her own home, into raising her own kids and how it's it's not good. Uh, Oh, I guess also just to mention that, like, in contrast to Geraldine, Pauline is more free with her sexuality. And then the next chapter gives us Choli's backstory. <laughs> like we see his life. He was also from the South. Uh, we learn that when he was just a few days old, his mom tried to abandon him like in the woods or something. And just I think on the train tracks, right? Or by the train tracks. yeah, Something like that. Basically, she was trying to kill him. And he just happens to be rescued by his great aunt who also raises him. And we see him growing up, kind of piecing together an identity from all these older folks in his life, from his aunt, the aunt's friends, to this guy named Blue. This might be my favorite chapter because there's just like a lot of cool imagery and commentary. Uh, Like there's this, this scene where... Choli, like as a very young kid, has this epiphany about how if God is white, then that must mean that the devil is black. But then he actually prefers the devil because the devil is just cooler. I mean, it's more nuanced and complicated than that, but it's it's a really cool image. Eventually, his aunt dies. And at the wake, he meets this cool teenage boy who helps him pick up a couple of chicks and they run off to the fields. They split up. Choli and this girl are flirting it up. Then they start kissing it up. And then they start sexing it up. And then we get this really horrifying scene where 
a couple of white men come across them and tell Choli to keep having sex and they just sit there and watch them. But then they they have to like go away soon after. But this is incredibly traumatizing for Choli. And this is basically the point in his life where everything falls apart. He runs away with this idea that he's going to find his father who ran away himself. And so he goes, he makes this like long trek across the South. And I think he ends up in Georgia, manages to find his dad. But the reunion (laughs) is not a happy one. His dad doesn't even realize that Choli is his son. He just thinks that Choli is there to try to like collect on some debt. So Choli's dad basically tells him to off. So it's this culmination of being abandoned by his mom and being rejected by his dad. And it's at this point that Choli just basically has no direction. So he just wanders around. Um, It's described how he's, quote unquote, dangerously free. And that's when he meets Pauline and they get married. And then we flash forward back to the present day when Choli comes home. He's drunk. He goes into the kitchen, Piccola's in there, and in this like really confused mindset that he has, he ends up raping her. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but suffice to say, it's extremely upsetting. And then we we meet our next character, uh, Soaphead Church, who, you know, is a fake fortune teller, and of course also a pedophile Uh, because you know this story can't get any happier uh we learn about his family's backstory which involves like uh, apparently some white british nobleman uh impregnated some black woman and this sort of launches like this whole effort by his like great great grandma or whatever this black woman to preserve and cultivate this white strain in the family now and This leads to this, like, I think Morrison calls it like a Victorian parody of this whole family going through every possible effort to minimize their blackness in any way they can, including some uh, incestuous relations. And the point is that it ultimately results in Soaphead, who is this horrible, misanthropic, absolute failure, who again is a pedophile. So anyway, he uh, eventually ends up in Lorraine, where he works as this fake fortune teller grifting people uh, by promising that he can give them what they desire, whether that's health or money or status. One day, Pecola shows up and she specifically asks if Soaphead can give her blue eyes. Again, I won't go into too much detail here for Morgan's sake, but basically... There's a dog that Soaphead really hates, and he tricks Piccola into giving this dog poison and suggests that it will help her get blue eyes. And then after that, he writes this long letter to God, literally to God, saying how great Soaphead is, how his pedophilia isn't all that bad, and how God just kind of sucks. And then we close the book. By this point, the town has found out that Choli raped Piccola and that she was actually impregnated with Choli's child 
uh, that was miscarried. And there's a lot of gossip about that. And it's really horrible. Uh, but we see a scene with Pocola herself, who's clearly just lost her mind at this point, has had some kind of mental breakdown. She is talking to herself, to some imaginary person, talking about how she has blue eyes now. And then we close again with Claudia reflecting on the after aftermath of everything, basically how the town failed her, how the country failed her, how one of the worst parts is that when people talk about Pacola, there's just absolutely no sympathy for her. It's just this really demeaning talk. And specifically, they, they all talk about how the baby that was lost in the miscarriage, like how that was a good thing that the baby died. And Claudia has this line about how she wishes that somebody would just value this black baby's life and have wanted it to live despite all the circumstances and not just throw it away with everything else. And then the book ends. <laughs> and they all lived happily yep. ever after. <laughs> well, they all live. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> again, it's a very brutal book. I don't know. Should we start off with talking about the more positive things just to kind of like give ourselves a break before we get into the, the heavy <laughs> Sure. Um, okay. I'll start with like what I enjoyed, I guess. I mean, Toni Morrison does a great character sketch. Yeah. So I think my probably very favorite part of the book was the chapter that just dwells on Pauline, that we get to see her whole history. And I just thought that was really beautifully done and handled. And you really see the way she transforms from this girl who likes, you know, lining up things properly on the mm -hmm. shelf into Mrs. Breedlove and everything that had to do with that. And I think that there's so many moments of, like, really impactful moments in that. Uh, certainly her entire, all, everything talking about her relationship with the White family mm. is really interesting and still, unfortunately, probably has some resonances for some people today. Um, and also just her, like, relationship with Trolley, who, like, at this point, we don't officially know that Trolley has done anything to Piccola. Um, but there's this this interesting dynamic where we've already seen Mrs. Breedlove and Trolley in like the present day literally wailing on each other. Yeah. While Piccola lays there and tries to imagine her entire body disappearing. And then you get to see that the the way they fell in love and there is, you kind of alluded to it, this really interesting sex scene between them. Yeah. Which was honestly shocking because like all of the depictions of sex in this book pretty much are gross except for that sex scene and it's it's when their relationship has already started to go downhill a little bit like so they move up north after they get married and Pauline doesn't really have any friends and like Trolley's working a lot and she doesn't really have much to do and she's unhappy so she gets a job and then he's not happy she has a job you know it's very it makes sense why their relationship is deteriorating but she talks about how even, like, in when Trolley had, like, you know, started drinking and was unhappy with her, even then sometimes he would come home and, like, get into bed with her and be, like, very affectionate and they would have sex. And, like, it's a really beautifully written sex yeah. scene. Um, <laughs> and then it gets contrasted with, like, she talks about how nowadays she'll wake up with him, like, already inside of her and just kind of, like, doing his thing. 
And so I think that what I really liked about it and what I think Toni Morrison can do really well is write these really complicated, messy, like not politically correct characters, if that makes sense. Yeah. And like be honest about like how people can be, but also show these moments of like warmth and tenderness and kindness. And like the fact that we, Pauline and Trolley are not, good people they're not good to their children they're not good to each other they're not good to really anyone else but like this is a little over halfway into the book you get this beautiful scene between them and you really feel the affection and love between them and i think it makes it more tragic that it's gone afterwards and so i think that was definitely yeah my favorite part of the entire book was her backstory um and i think that that is the strongest part of the book is is when Morrison is able to sit with these characters and really give them give you the moments of horror but also give you the moments of yeah love affection kindness I really like that yeah I I'd say that the second half of this book is much much better than the first part yes we we could talk about this because this again is Morrison's first book and it it reads like that. I don't even know what genre to list this because it's like it's framed as this kind of historical fiction. It's framed as this kind of almost a memoir, but it also kind of has elements of like slice of life and kind of has elements of stream of consciousness. Uh, but these character studies are just so fascinating. The way she can paint these particular particular traits or quirks or whatever and then show how they naturally and organically lead to these these deeper themes that end up sort of dictating these people's lives as you mentioned with mrs breedlove how she really loves organizing things as a kid she really likes putting things in a line and how that kind of naturally naturally leads to the orderliness of white families and how she prizes that and then turns to that for comfort and then looks at her own black family as just chaos, something to be reined in and dominated in this really terrible way. And that's, yeah, that's the kind of like To Kill a Mockingbird, perhaps even more so than To Kill a Mockingbird. It's so clear that Morrison is not afraid of the messiness of humanity and allowing terrible people to have good moments and good people to have terrible moments or just showing how (laughs) really what's probably more accurate is just how people Mm flip-flop. Pauline is not a terrible person as a kid. It's just that circumstances of life kind of push her into becoming who she becomes. And it's, it's the same with Choli. There's like these really cool moments that I loved really with Choli's character specifically, but it really applies to Pauline and and everyone else, where we get these like beautiful moments that are just so well described. And honestly, Morrison is such a good writer. It's like reading her prose is like drinking a fine wine. She's just such a good writer. But she plays on that in this really cool way where she will describe a scene And paint it in these really beautiful ways. And then suddenly she will shift your attention to something else. And remark on the impact it has on that thing. 
Let me see if I can find a good example of that. Oh, it's actually the same passage that I where I read that quotation about pain, because it's all these old women just gathered together talking about their various pains and aches and whatever. And there's this like paragraph that I'll just read it here. But they had been young once. The odor of their armpits and haunches had mingled into a lovely musk. Their eyes had been furtive, their lips relaxed, and the delicate turn of their heads on those slim black necks had been like nothing other than a doze. Their laughter had been more touch than sound. That line, that line is so good. And then it just like, it sort of goes into what these uh, women have dealt with. Uh, and then it talks about how they got older and how in being old, they were actually freed. And it's this really cool moment. With relief, they wrapped their heads in rags and their breasts in flannel, eased their feet into felt. They were through with lust and lactation beyond tears and terrors. They alone could walk the roads of Mississippi, the lanes of Georgia, the fields of Alabama unmolested. They're old enough to be irritable when and where they chose, tired enough to look forward to death, disinterested enough to accept the idea of pain while ignoring the presence of pain. They were, in fact, and at last, free. And the lives of these old black women were synthesized in their eyes, a puree of tragedy and humor, wickedness and serenity, truth and fantasy. And you're just, I was just sitting here like, oh, this is so amazing. I'm just so in love with this prose. And then <laughs> we suddenly remember that Choli is there sort of witnessing all this talk. And it talks about like how he has this like weird sexual awakening as a result of this. And you're like, oh, oh, no, this like beautiful moment. That's wonderful. And it like speaks to this newfound freedom that these women have. And how that imprints on Choli and just f***s up his whole mentality about everything. Or contributes to f***ing up his mentality about everything. That Morrison is so good at doing that. Of showing how even good things can lead to the unintended consequences of just not poisoning a kid's mind. But just giving them ideas that will not be healthy. Just a heads up, Morgan and I will now be discussing the sexual abuse of a character by a family member. If you would prefer not to listen to this, you can simply skip the rest of the episode and pick up with us next week. In the meantime, I'll be playing some nice elevator music to give you time to exit out of this episode if you so wish. example of what you just described though is i mean i hate to bring this to Picola's rape but mm. Picola's rape which like gets started because totally wanders home drunk and sees Picola scratching her leg with her other foot and he's reminded of when he met pauline and how she was kind of doing the same thing or standing with her leg up and he 
just kind of got down and like bit her leg. Yeah. Which is a a thing that like is posed as very romantic in their relationship meeting, but um please don't just go on the street and bite people's legs. <laughs> but anyhow, it's a very romantic moment in the context of the story. It's meant to show the sort of like whimsical love that they originally shared and so there's there's that moment which then gets brought back up and he sees Piccola do this and he's kind of like has this surge of affection and protectiveness, partially because of his memories of Pauline. Mm. And so he gets down and does the same thing to Piccolo's leg, and then that leads to the rape. And so, I mean, I thought that was the biggest example of this thing being shown to us. And that moment of the two of them meeting and, like, Pauline looking down and feeling like she saw, like, I forget all the things that are described, but she, like, talks about how he's just this kind of, like, warm sunshine color to her. And he reminds her of, like, home. It's really beautiful. It gets brought up again during the sex scene as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's this lovely, lovely moment that then becomes later on the catalyst for her daughter's rape. So yes, there's this way in which like even the really beautiful, lovely things can get transformed into weapons. Or it's not even yeah. weapons. I, I guess I not at all to defend Choli in this moment because it is absolutely reprehensible what he does. The narrative tells us that like it starts as him just feeling affection for his daughter. But then it like turns into this thing because Choli just doesn't know how to show affection any other way. It's all goes back to this this moment where he was caught having sex by these white men and how they I guess it was a sexual assault that he experienced. I don't know how to yes. term it. Yes, I would say at that point it goes from a like a consensual sexual encounter to being non-consensual on both sides because it's under circumstance. They're like having sex under duress, basically. And he has this really interesting reaction where, in fact, rather than hating the white men, he actually starts to hate this woman that he's sleeping with. And part of that, the narrative tells us, is because he can't do anything to the white men in every sense of the word. He is completely impotent against them. But with women, he's able to lash out at the women in his life, just take what he wants and punish them for all of his hate and anger that he feels. The beautiful moments get corrupted. Or it's not even that they're corrupted. It's just that it's like in this one circumstance, this action is beautiful and wonderful and amazing. And in another circumstance, it's not And it's just that all these circumstances build together where people just don't know how to communicate and respond to each other. And so they end up just hurting each other. I think there's a line at the beginning of the book about how answering the why of what happened is just way too painful. So people just focus on the how because that's so much easier to digest. It... It's it's hard. It is hard, man. Catch the second part next week on Reread. See you then. My